1931, English author Aldous Huxley wrote one of the most famous dystopian novels ever written, Brave New World. And then 18 years later, another Englishman by the name of George Orwell published 1984, which is probably the most famous dystopian novel ever written. Both books depict a horrible future in which totalitarian governments rule over their people, but the novels have some important differences. In 1984, for instance, the government rule is enforced from the top down on the people. And in A Brave New World, the people themselves have so given themselves over to distraction and to sin that they no longer care for freedom or having responsibility. Neil Postman, a social critic, he writes about this tendency toward distraction in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was published in 1985. In the book, he also discusses some of the differences between 1984 and Brave New World. Here's a quote from Postman about these differences. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. And Huxley feared what we love will ruin us. <clears throat> when I read that quote, I think of our current cultural moment. We live in a culture that is awash in information and that celebrates sin. In Brave New World, the government was able to control the people because they had become distracted by debauchery and pleasure. My fear for us as a church is that as we live in our own culture of ubiquitous distraction and celebration of sin, that we might get distracted from the pursuit of godliness. My fear is that we might take our eyes off Christ and set them on the things of this world. But we are not called to be preoccupied by the things of this world, by the things of the flesh. We are called to a higher purpose, which is what I'd like to explore in further detail this morning. <clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Today, we're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12, but I would like to read verses 6 through 16 so that we can place these two verses in context and understand them correctly. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 16, and if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign God, King over all kings, and Lord over all lords, we worship you. Who, Lord, can come before your throne? Who, Lord, apart from Christ, can stand before you? What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, we confess that we are unworthy. We are unworthy of your word, your grace, your righteousness. And yet, in your mercy, you set your love upon us. Though we were dead in sin, wicked before your sight, you sent your son Jesus to redeem us. And you have given us your word that we might know you. Lord, please use your word today. Let it be a light to expose our sin. Let it be a balm to heal. May it increase our esteem for Christ and refine us as gold is refined in a fire. Use it as a means to bring us to repentance and faith. And may we grow in obedience to your commands. In your son's name we pray. So as I mentioned, we're going to look in detail at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 begins with, but as for you, this initial phrase signals a transition from what has come before in the previous section. As we can see in verses 3 through 10, Paul is warning about false teachers, wicked men who would use the appearance of godliness to line their own pockets. So here in verse 11, Paul transitions from talking about these false teachers to addressing Timothy. <clears throat> but as for you, O man of God, Paul describes Timothy as a man of God. This phrase, man of God, is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Bible that the writers of the New Testament would have been using and reading, the Septuagint. That phrase, man of God, is used to describe men like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, David. A man of God is a spiritual leader, one who sets an example of faithfulness to God 
for others. And it's something that we should all aspire to be. Paul then proceeds to urge Timothy to flee these things. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So a few questions. First, what is Paul urging Timothy to flee? What is he urging Timothy to flee? The word that is used for these things refers back to the previous section. So to look back at the previous section, we can see that these things refers to evil and sin that result from the love of money. Evil and sin that result from the love of money. Now, why does Paul feel it necessary to urge Timothy to flee from sin? I'll bet none of us read verses 3 through 10 and thought to ourselves, oh yeah, envy, dissension, slander, that sounds great. That's good stuff. So why the command to flee? Does an antelope need to be encouraged to flee from a pride of lions? No, of course not. Why? Because the antelope sees the lions for what they are, and we do not. This is a paradox of the Christian condition. <clears throat> we recognize the wickedness of sin, and so we see the necessity of avoiding it. We see the danger, yet at the same time, we retain weaknesses of the flesh. We still have a propensity, a desire for things of the, of the flesh. And so the exhortation to flee is necessary. Even as believers, we are tempted to love money, to sin against God. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you fleeing from sin this morning? Are you fleeing from sin? Do you run from it as an antelope runs from a lion? Or, on the other hand, do you nurture sin in your heart? Are you even now allowing sin a foothold in your life? Paul follows this in verse 11 with another command. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. So the contrast here is clear. Paul commands Timothy to run from that which is evil and to run toward that which is good. These six nouns summarize the characteristics of a Christian life that is lived to the glory of God. And they contrast sharply with the evils that flow from the love of money. John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, writes, Paul's call to pursue these things is his answer to the, to the love of money and the sins that spring from the love of money. So I'd like to focus here on one of these attributes, godliness, for a couple of reasons. First of all, godliness as a concept really encompasses all of these other virtues. And second, Paul uses the word godliness earlier in the chapter. We started in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So for the rest of the sermon, I'd like to focus on this concept of godliness. First, we'll define godliness. 
What is godliness? Next, we'll look at three motives to pursue godliness. So three motives to encourage us toward godliness. Then we're going to discuss three obstacles to godliness, three barriers to pursuing godliness. And finally, I'll conclude with some thoughts on how we can apply these verses in our lives. So how might we define godliness? What is godliness? I think a helpful way to define godliness is the imitation of God's character. The imitation of God's character. Now, why do I define it this way? Another way to define godliness would be to say that it means to be like God, to be like God. But I think we should be careful with that language because there are some attributes of God that we as finite creatures cannot imitate. God is all powerful, all knowing. He's infinite in glory. He's self-existent. And we are creatures limited by and bound by time, physical space. We cannot imitate these eternal, incommunicable attributes of God's nature. We can, however, imitate his character. One commentary defined godliness as the duty that man owes to God. And I think that that captures part of of it, but I think it misses a critical aspect of godliness. Defining godliness by the word duty limits its sphere to behavior. And moral behavior is certainly necessary. It's a necessary condition for godliness, but it's not sufficient. I think more than mere behavior, godliness encompasses also our wills, our beliefs, what we value. Indeed, godliness is really about aligning every aspect of our life and being with God. Godliness means that we not only obey God's external commands, but that we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. This is why godliness is the imitation of God's character. Because through the process of sanctification, our character becomes increasingly like his. So now that we have defined what godliness is, I'd like to explore several motives to pursue godliness. Motives to godliness. Look at three. The first Well, my my hope is that these three will be an encouragement to you to see the benefit and the glory of pursuing godliness. So first, the first motive to godliness is the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. Consider, dear Christian, that Christ has satisfied all the wrath that you deserve. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The eternal son of God took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it all. If you are right now trusting in Christ, there is not a single drop left for you to drink. He drank it all. Every sin you've committed is paid for. 
Would you then heap more wrath upon Christ by continuing in sin? Would you add to his suffering? May it never be. Meditate on the sacrifice of Christ, then go and sin no more. The second motive to godliness is the dominion of Christ. The dominion of Christ. In the passage earlier, we read Psalm 2. So I'd like to go back to Psalm 2 to consider what it says of Christ. So in Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God the Father promised to give Jesus the nations as an inheritance. Everything is his. There is no area of your life that does not belong to Christ. And this is precisely the process of sanctification. What is sanctification if it's not God bringing every area of your life into submission to Christ? Do not hold back from Christ what is rightfully his. Give it all to him. Give it all to him. The third motive to godliness is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. My new favorite hymn is called Our Sovereign God. I ran across it a couple of weeks ago while I was looking through our hymnal. It was written by Tom Pennington, and it is a wonderful reminder that all of history has been ordained by God, and that he is even now working out all things for his glory. I find the third verse to be particularly encouraging. It reads, Before our birth, he planned our days, laid out our course, ordained our ways. The moments of our lives he weaves, so all the glory he receives. To those he loved before all time, to all he called in grace renewed. He cannot lie, his word is true. He makes all things to work for good. He makes all things to work for good. Our glorious God is working out all things for his glory and renown. Let this truth motivate you to pursue godliness. What else is worthy of your time? What else are you going to spend your energy on? To glorify our great God is the only thing that will fulfill his people. Do you feel aimless, purposeless, discontent, unmoored? Anchor yourself in the glory of God and determine that you will not be satisfied until every area of your life is submitted to him. Okay, so now that we've explored a few motives for pursuing godliness, let's explore the obstacles that would prevent you from pursuing godliness. The obstacles to godliness. 
The first obstacle we will examine is indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. So by indwelling sin, what I mean is those particular sins that are hardest for you to resist and which you are most prone to. These are often different for each of us because we each have our own personality and tendencies. You may struggle particularly with lust or greed or gossip or materialism. In God's providence, we do not immediately overcome these indwelling sins at the moment of conversion, but we struggle against them. But take care, brothers and sisters, that you do indeed struggle, that you don't nurse these sins in secret. The greatest obstacle to godliness is a sin that festers in the dark. Shine the light of God's word upon it. Confess it to another believer. Don't continue to nurse sin in secret. The second obstacle to godliness is media consumption. Media consumption. Christians, the media you consume matters. Too many of us today do not give enough thought to the media we consume. Consider for a moment the things that you watch, read, listen to. Do they give life to your soul and encourage you to press on toward godliness? Do they instead celebrate sin and encourage you to indulge in the desires of the flesh? Is it possible that the very content you consume is grieving the Holy Spirit? And even if the things you consume are not celebrating sin, if you spend an inordinate amount of time watching or listening, it can distract you from the higher call of pursuing godliness. Don't get distracted by the media of this world. Focus on what is essential. Pursue godliness. The third obstacle to godliness is materialism materialism. We live in a culture that is immensely wealthy. The median household income in the United States is $60,000 per year. This, uh, a household income of $32,000 per year would put that household in the top 1% of incomes globally. This means that even a low income in the United States is wealthy compared to the rest of the world. This is magnified even further when we consider the standard of living throughout history. By historical standards, we are fabulously wealthy. This great wealth is a temptation because it can distract us from the things of God. Remember Christ's words that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When we are preoccupied with all of the material blessings that our wealth provides, we lose focus on the necessity of pursuing godliness. These obstacles mean that fleeing from sin and pursuing godliness is no easy task. 
It is an undertaking filled with difficulty and hardship. This is why Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Notice first that it is indeed a fight. Paul recognizes that the Christian life is a struggle. It is difficult to pursue godliness in a world that is opposed to Christ and by extension opposed to you. Second, note Paul's use of the adjective good. It's a good fight. This is not an easy struggle, but neither is it a fruitless or a hopeless one. We struggle for godliness, for God's kingdom in the sure knowledge that Christ has already accomplished our victory. It is a good, worthy, rewarding fight to be in. Calvin writes, if ordinary soldiers do not hesitate to fight when the outcome is uncertain and when they risk their lives, how much more courageously should we fight under the guidance of Christ's banner? For we know that victory is assured and that a reward is waiting for us, which far exceeds any military reward as our reward is forever and is a heavenly one. American soldiers give their lives every day to preserve our freedom and safety, a fact for which we should all be profoundly grateful. How much more should we as believers give our lives for God's kingdom? Paul continues in verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life. Note that Paul doesn't say wait for eternal life. This is not something Timothy is supposed to look forward to in the future. This is a command for his present reality. Take hold of eternal life. Once you are converted, your eternal life begins now. Don't wait until after you die to possess it. Take hold of it now. Make godliness a reality in your life today. Paul continues, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Let me ask you, who called Timothy? Who called you? You were called by God. Dear believer, let this be an immense encouragement to you. God the Father, the author of all existence, before he created his love, or before he created the world, set his love upon you. Then, knowing the cost for the joy set before him, Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and bore the wrath that you deserved. He took the punishment that you ought to suffer. Then the Holy Spirit applied that work of atonement to you. The triune God has called, redeemed, and converted you. So dear brothers and sisters, don't get distracted by the trinkets of this world. Fix your eyes upon him because he is worthy of it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called.
Nothing gives us more courage and resolve to do so than knowing that we have been called by God. Paul closes verse 12 by reminding Timothy of his public profession and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Like Timothy, each of us has made a profession of faith. The question we need to consider is this. Do we live in a way that is consistent with the public profession of faith that we have made? Do we live in a way that is consistent with it? Mothers, when you're at home teaching your children, is your conduct consistent with your profession of faith? Men, is your character and behavior at work consistent with your profession of faith? It is not merely enough to profess faith, but we must embody it in every area of our lives. With this in mind, as our time this morning draws to a close, I would like to discuss a few practical ways that we can apply our passage today. First, I'd like to encourage each of you to take some time for self-reflection today and ask yourself, are there any areas of my life in which I am not submitting to God? Are there any areas of my life in which I'm not submitting to God? Consider the various roles you have, husband, father, boss, employee, church member. Is there an area in which you can bring your, your life into greater submission to Christ? The Lord's Day is a great time for focusing on the things of God. So I would encourage you to set some time aside this afternoon to do so. <clears throat> Another practical suggestion I would make is to the fathers. <clears throat> Men, you set the tone and the priority for your household. And we must bring our homes and our families into submission to Christ. We're fighting against the information age, a constant onslaught of information and advertising. So let's focus our family life on the God of all glory. One way that you can do this is by leading your family in family worship every day. Leading your family in family worship every day. So family worship is a daily time of worship. It doesn't have to be long in order to be effective. A good family worship can consist of singing a hymn, reading a passage of scripture, and then praying together. And whether you've been married for five days or five decades, you should be leading your family in some sort of daily worship. If you will take up this task and do it consistently, I promise you it will pay dividends for your family. Brothers and sisters, here are some questions for you to reflect on this week. What would your life look like if you relentlessly pursued godliness in every area of your life? What would your family look like? How would it make a difference in your marriage? How would it impact your children? What would your workplace look like? How can it make a difference for your coworkers? What difference would it make in our church if every person here brought every area of their lives 
into submission to God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would use it in our lives. I pray that we would greatly esteem Christ. He is worthy of all our praise and worship. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts today. I pray that we would take this day as a day of rest to focus on you. And I pray that you would encourage every believer here in your word. And Lord, if there are, if there are unbelievers here, people who have not placed their faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin to them. I pray that even now they would see their condition before you and that they would come to Christ in repentance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.